The ability to believe in Santa Claus is an indicator of youthful innocence in our culture. Children who believe Santa is real prove that they are still young enough to fully enjoy youthful fantasies in full measure. But a day comes, inevitably, for many children when they realize that Santa is not real. And that marks for many their emergence out of the shadows of youthful ignorance into the light of reality. We see that going on around us. Probably very few of us in our own homes, but we see that certainly in our broader culture. Some would charge us as a Christian people, as those who hold firmly to the truth of God's Word, that we need to come to the same type of progress with respect to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. To believe that Mary conceived Jesus without having intercourse with a man is akin to believing that Santa Claus flies around in a red sled drawn by flying reindeer and drops presents off at your home on Christmas Eve. It is not, of course, we understand, a legitimate parallel. And I think that even the most cynical critic of Scripture understands that. That the belief in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is something very different than belief in, say, Santa Claus. To date, at least in my experience, I've not seen any articles or books or lectures at seminars held to convince others that Santa is not real. But there are many who work overtime to continue to convince Christians that the virgin birth is a myth. No one needs to argue that Santa is a myth because everyone who has ever been led to believe in him grows up one day naturally to abandon that belief. But we are gathered here today in the name of Jesus Christ, representing untold numbers of Christians throughout the world and down through the ages who continue to hold tenaciously to our conviction that Jesus Christ was virgin-born. So I'm doubtful that you will find any books arguing rationally with believers in Santa to abandon their belief. But there are many volumes that argue against the virgin birth of Christ. To illustrate, the German scholar Soltau says in his book, The Birth of Jesus Christ, I quote, Whoever makes the demand that an evangelical Christian shall believe, and I'll just put there, that he must believe, in the words, quote, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin, wittingly constitutes himself a sharer in a sin against the Holy Spirit of the true gospel is transmitted to us by the apostles and their school in the apostolic age. All of that to say that anyone who promotes the virgin birth of Christ is involved in sin. We are promoting a myth that harms the true gospel. Another author concludes that belief in the virgin birth, I quote, operates as a hindrance to spiritual religion and a real living faith in Jesus. It is impossible, we are told, for a virgin to bear a child. Impossible. So give up your fantasy, or you will harm the true faith of Jesus Christ. I've done some reading in years gone by and in preparation for this sermon, 
And it's interesting to note that the arguments advanced by such critics inevitably hinge upon what the critic believes is possible and what he or she determines is impossible. That's really the heart of the whole matter. Well, may I say that as followers of Jesus Christ, I believe that our job is not to tell God what is possible and what is impossible. Our job is to believe what God tells us happened. And it comes down to that. For us, the final test is not what we determine is rational. The final test is what is true. And so as we meditate in this season on the birth of Jesus Christ, I'd like for us to concentrate our thoughts for a few moments on this very fact, upon this very theme, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Let me define what we mean here first of all. I think that's important. Jesus Christ, by virgin birth, we mean that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became a man at the moment he was conceived supernaturally in the womb of his mother Mary, who was a virgin at the time of that conception, and remained a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus. Said another way, Jesus had a human mother, but no human father. We would assume, as many have thought, that sperm was united with ovum, but this sperm was not supplied by a man. Now that's a stretch. That's a stretch for all of us. Certainly that does not fit with our common experience. And so there is much rejection of this. The widespread objection to Jesus' virgin birth through the centuries evidences the vital nature of this doctrine to the Christian faith. Critics don't leave it alone, and they never have. And all their attention really adds to the fact that Christ's birth was mysterious, or at least a unique aspect of one's understanding of who he is. And we see that from the very beginning. I'd like you to tur turn to Mark chapter 6. This is not a verse that we want to make too much of, certainly, but it is something, a verse or an indicator of the mysteriousness of Jesus' birth, that it was shrouded in some respect to those that surrounded Christ. We need to put this again in the context of that day in which everyone knew everyone and everyone knew where everyone came from. There was no question about it. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, in this context we read of some who are Responding to Jesus' miraculous ministry, they say, Mark 6 and verse 3, Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Isn't this Mary's son? The identity of Jewish men was always linked to their father, even if their father was dead. At bare minimum, this reference is derogatory. At bare minimum. But it also may indicate a commonly recognized fact that Joseph was not Jesus' father. This is certainly not to say these people thought that Jesus was virgin born. It is just to say that they knew that Joseph was not his father. What did they think about Jesus' origin? We might find further light in John chapter 8 and verse 39. John chapter 8 and verse 39. The opposition against Christ is forming, is very strong at this point. And there is an objection here that they have to what Christ has said that goes before. We'll not take time to read the whole passage. But John chapter 8 and verse 39, Abraham is our father, they answered. 
If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. In other words, you're not children of Abraham because you're not doing what Abraham would do. You are doing the things of your own that your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Well, the statement may be taken more than one way, I will acknowledge, but these antagonists may intend here to stress that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock. Joseph was not Jesus' father. The only conclusion an enlightened antagonist could draw is that Jesus was conceived during an immoral encounter between Mary and a man other than Joseph. And that is the conclusion, I think, to which they have arrived here. We are not illegitimate. I know it can be taken different ways, and we don't want to put too much on it, but on the other hand, you have to ask, where does that point come from in this whole discussion? That we are not illegitimate children. It may well be a barb at Christ and the fact that he was not, that Joseph was not his father. Now let me jump ahead a little bit further. Jesus is gone. The early church has gotten uh, out of the starting gate, so to speak, and we come to one of the earliest formal critics of Christianity, a second century Roman author by the name of Celsus. Celsus argued against what he felt were the key doctrines of Scripture. Included in that critique, it is interesting to note, is also a discussion on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. He felt that was a crucial doctrine. One of the first pagan critics to really tackle Christianity as a legitimate philosophy in his terms. Well, Celsus proposed that Jesus was the son of Mary and a Roman soldier by the name of Panthera. And it is widely believed that Celsus got this information from rumors that had been started by Jews and had done, he had done some interviews with Jews and came up with this name. But what it says to us here is that at a very early stage in the history of the church, even pagan critics of the faith realized that Christians believed in the virgin birth of Christ and that this doctrine was important to the faith. Celsus didn't mess around when he attacked Christianity. He didn't waste his time. And one of the things he went after was the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Well, into our own era and modern times, as we look at the late 19th century and the early 20th century in particular, there were people who didn't mess around with this doctrine either. The difference was they were no longer pagans. They were now people who claimed to be Christian. And through what we refer to as modernism and liberalism, there has been a very decided and ongoing attack against the virgin birth of Christ. In more recent times, it's been popular to argue then that the apostles of Christ invested, or rather invented, the virgin birth narratives of Jesus. When you research the early history of the church, this proposition is impossible. It does not fit with history. But there's one nice thing in all of this for the modernists and the liberal theologians, and that's that most people don't know early church history, don't have any clue about it, and so we can just say these things, that the apostles invented this. You have a really hard time showing that from history. But that having been said, the idea is that Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary, or more probably to Joseph and some other soldier. These 
Christians have jumped on the bandwagon of the early pagan critic uh, Celsus and said, yes, Jesus was, with, uh, was born, his father was a Roman soldier. But that's not really the point for the liberals and the modernists in their attack. The real point here is not the identity of Jesus' father. That was an earlier issue, as we've noted, from Jesus' critics, from Celsus and many others. For the liberal and the modernist, that's not the issue. The issue is rather the source of the virgin birth myth. They really don't care who Jesus' father was. The issue is, where did this myth come from? And this dubious honor, the critics pin on the followers of Jesus themselves. This is some myth, this is a story they came up with very early in the Christian experience. This is a very difficult theory to hold unless you're predisposed to hold it right out of the chute. But in the face of reason, it really doesn't stand up. This view assumes, first of all, that the followers of Christ were a very unique body of people. They were a mixture on the one hand of the most gullible people that have ever walked the face of the earth, and on the other hand, some of the most careful deceivers. And that the two somehow got together and some gullibly believing this truth and others being all kind of winking as they talked about the virgin birth. This view also assumes that the mother and siblings of Jesus did nothing to stop this myth. In fact, and particularly in Mary's case, she probably had part in creating the myth of the virgin birth. This view asks us to believe that large numbers of these disciples were executed for holding to the myth of Christ's deity. How many people do you know that die in mass for a myth? This view also fails to account for the universal belief in the virgin birth which is found in every historic creed of the early church. Without internal objection, there were those who began to respond to pagan critics, and so the virgin birth and that doctrine became compromised as they tried to accommodate Christian or rather pagan critics, but you find no internal discussion in the early centuries between Christians about the virgin birth of Christ. This was a universally held, consistent belief, ultimately for whom many gave their life. Now obviously the point there wasn't the virgin birth of Christ, it was belief in Jesus, it was being a Christian. Nonetheless, if Christ was made God through this myth, We'll have to say that there were many, many people who gave their lives for the myth. The critics would have us believe that the virgin birth was a foolish myth, that the early church was too dumb to overcome, but history shows a very different picture. I think, in fact, of the commonly quoted statement by Ignatius of Antioch uh, that um, womb of Gentile Christianity there at Antioch. Somewhere before 117 AD, he said in his epistle to the Ephesians that the virgin birth of Christ was one of the mysteries to be shouted about. One of the mysteries to be shouted about. Now let's remember for a few minutes why we shout about it. Why we proclaim this truth. Why we hold it so firmly. First of all, if you make your way to Matthew chapter 1, we look just to remind ourselves again of what we've considered many times and know very well. But here is why we hold to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The argument is not with reason so much 
as the argument is with Scripture, let's look at what we believe, because we believe the Bible as a church. The fact of the virgin birth through Christ's birth narrative according to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. That's said very carefully. Before they came together, which is a commonly used phrase referring to sexual relations. Before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Said very carefully. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Not from a man, but from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. So not only does the angel give to Joseph this word, this child is from the Holy Spirit, but this situation is a fulfillment of divine prophecy. Verse 23, quoting Isaiah 7, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. There is a purposeful connecting here in the text to this statement by the angel and the pro prophecy made by Isaiah hundreds of years before. When Joseph woke up, verse 24, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. He had no union with her. She remained a virgin until after the birth of Jesus Christ. This is why we believe in the virgin birth. Luke chapter 1 passage we've looked at some months ago, but let's just again remind ourselves, Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, in the sixth month God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. There is clearly emphasis here in verse 27 of Luke 1 upon Mary's virginity. Verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? It's clearly established in the text that she is a virgin, and her very obvious question here is, how is this going to happen? probably a fair amount of discussion goes on that's not recorded here for us, and somehow Mary understands that this is something that is to happen to her, and to happen to her very soon. And so she asked the obvious question. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. In such a context as this, verse 37 is a very meaningful word. Nothing is impossible with God. We can go to secondary evidences here in Matthew and Luke. If you'll keep your finger... Well, let's just start here in Luke. Let's go to chapter 3 and verse 23. Then we'll go back to Matthew very briefly. But you remember these statements in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, how they essentially trip over themselves to avoid saying that Joseph is Jesus' father. Verse 23 of Luke chapter 3, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. We go back to Matthew in chapter 1 and verse 16. We have a very similar stilted kind of way of referring to Jesus in the genealogy. Chapter 1 and verse 16 of Matthew, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So you have this man fathers, this man fathers, this man fathers, this man, and then you end with Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Well, we're very aware of these texts, and I have not taken time to belabor them before you here today, but this is why I believe in the virgin birth. And I'm comfortable living that way. This is why I believe that I'm on my way to heaven and why I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and why I believe everything that has brought joy and fulfillment and purpose in my life is because it's in this book. I don't go to sleep at night worrying about whether or not the Bible's true. I've found it true in my experience day after day after day and God has witnessed its truth to me in a unique way spiritual way as he has to those who know him as Savior. I believe in the virgin birth of Christ because God told me right here in his word what happened. It's that simple for us. And yet we're not unaware of the criticisms and we're not mystified by the fact that some would find it hard to believe in the virgin birth of Christ. I don't look at this boastfully say we're the smart ones I say thank God for his grace to shine light on what is truth but let's reflect on what we believe here for a few moments in this Christmas season let me ask a few questions was the birth of Jesus a miracle then was the birth of Jesus a miracle no it wasn't it was as natural as any other birth I remember a cantata that was sung in our church I was part of a long time ago called Night of Miracles. And it talked about all the miracles that took place on the night that Jesus was born. I don't know if there were any miracles on the night that Jesus was born in the technical sense of the term. That's one thing that the first Christmas was not, a night of miracles. Some might say, now wait a minute, what about the angels? That had to be a miracle, didn't it? Well, I don't think that it really was technically miraculous. It was revelatory. God unveiled the presence of these angels that he had dispatched to the shepherds. It was supernatural, certainly. It was not miraculous. I think I could illustrate this. 
If we were visited in a spaceship by Martians, would that be a miracle? Well, yeah, I guess it would be, but let's, uh, now that I think about it, <laughs> but uh, let, let's assume that there are Martians, and we just never saw them, and they never came, but now they came down to Earth, and they showed up in a spaceship. Would that be a miracle? It'd be a revelation to all of us that there was such a thing as Martians, but it wouldn't be a miracle. They just tra took their transportation and got here. These angels lived. They had been created long ago to serve the purposes of God, and those angels, I believe, on the basis of Scripture, are all around us right now. We just don't see them. God just revealed to these shepherds at that moment what was real. He had dispatched these angels. They travel all the time, and when God gives them that purpose, they deliver messages. That was really not miraculous. It was certainly supernatural, out of the natural realm. But my point, of course, is simply this, that Mary had a very normal delivery. It wasn't a miraculous delivery. Now there are, I'm not sure if we are aware of this, but within the Roman church, there are scholars who hold that Jesus passed miraculously and painlessly through the uterine wall of Mary. Um, I imagine in a light moment, she might say, I, I wish... But that didn't happen. Jesus was born like we were all born. That is a myth, that he just passed through the uterine wall. There's not a shred of evidence in Scripture for that. There's not a shred of historical record on that point at all. Was the birth of Jesus miraculous? No. Was the conception of Jesus miraculous? I think some of you were on that page earlier as I saw the shock in your faces. <laughs> yes, that was. In some respects, certainly, there had to be something there. I, I, you can get probably too bogged down in the details of it, but in some way, there needed to be the provision of sperm to penetrate Mary's ovum to start that life. Now, that, in some respect, was apparently miraculous that God intervened in the time-space mass continuum and brought that about. But all we can say is that the conception of Jesus was supernatural. We don't know how it happened, but it certainly was supernatural. It was a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Did Mary remain a virgin for life? This, of course, is again the Roman position, the Roman Catholic doctrine on this point. And I don't think it would be a matter to be concerned about if it were not that it was used in ways that really are harmful to Christian doctrine. But let's look at Luke chapter 8 and verse 19. Luke chapter 8. We read this earlier from a different place, but Luke chapter 8 and verse 19. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. Uh, I, if there was not an agenda here, this would be taken by everyone to say exactly what it says. Your mother and your brothers are out there waiting for you. That's all that it means. But of course there is an agenda and the agenda is that Mary remained a perpetual virgin, and therefore these are really just cousins or maybe 
children from a previous marriage of Joseph's or something of the like. We don't need to jump through those hoops. And I could add about five to ten other passages of Scripture that refer very pointedly to the sons of Mary, the brothers of Jesus. There's no need for us to consider that Mary was a virgin for life. There's no virtue in that inherently. And therefore, it does not preserve her from sin in any way, does not make her any better if she remained a virgin for life. If God brought her to her husband and they had children, that was good and the blessing and grace of God. And that's all that it was. Was the virgin birth essential to preserve Jesus from a sin nature? Well, not necessarily. Some have argued that by bypassing Joseph, God permitted Jesus to bypass the sin nature that all infants receive from Adam. I got, there's one question there, and that's what about Mary? Mary was a sinner, yet God preserved Jesus from Mary's sin nature. Did he not? In some way, in some respect, he preserved Jesus from that. And so if he preserved Jesus from Mary's sin nature, the influence of that sin nature, he preserved, could have preserved Jesus from Joseph's sin nature had he chosen to do it that way. We need to be cautious with that idea. But again, I'm aiming at certain theology. And we do this not to beat up on anybody or to throw rocks and realize that there can be other positions that are taken, but... I think it's important that we continue to maintain the true doctrine. And so I enter here again the Roman Catholic position. And that is that Jesus did not inherit a sin nature from Mary because Mary was sinless. Now, to, it, to the credit of the Roman Catholic theologian, they realize there is a problem here. Jesus was the son of Mary. And if Jesus is the son of Mary, how is it possible that Jesus is not a sinner? Well, the answer, Mary was not a sinner. Now, we would give another answer to that, that in some way God preserved Jesus from that fallen nature, but we do need to address this point. Was Mary sinless? The Roman Church refers to this doctrine as the Immaculate Conception. Now, it's very easy for our untrained Protestant ears to hear Immaculate Conception and think that's Jesus. Well, that was an Immaculate Conception, believe me. But that's not the point. The point of the Immaculate Conception is that Mary was conceived without sin. Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854, quote, the most holy Virgin Mary was in the first moment of her conception preserved free from all stain of original sin. And the position is that she remained free of personal sin throughout all of her lifetime. So Mary was sinless. Now let's make no mistake, and I love to press this point for us. Mary was a good woman. She was a unique woman. She was a woman I believe that we would honor above all other women if we knew her. But let's also make no mistake, Mary was a sinner. First of all, because the Bible never says anything else. It never indicates, implies in any way, and certainly makes no statement that Mary was anything other than a sinner. The Immaculate Conception idea is purely made up in somebody's head. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the two people in the Bible who are born where that was not true of them 
the three, there is very careful discussion in Scripture to show how they either became sinners or never were sinners. Adam and Eve and Jesus. There is not one word about Mary being sinless, and therefore not one word of explanation to show that she was sinless, and the only assumption is that, like all other people, she had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Secondly, as proof of her sinfulness, Mary died. Why did Adam and Eve, the only two human beings outside of Christ that were born without sin, why did they die? And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And remember that refrain in Genesis, and Eve died, and Adam died. Jesus died because of sin, but showing, of course, that it was not his sin, he rose from the dead. The Bible, let's say, as a dramatic understatement, goes to some pains to show that Jesus did not die or was not defeated by sin. But there is nothing said of this for Mary. She died because she was a sinner and she did not rise from the dead. Thirdly, we would have to ask the question of how did Mary get this sinless nature? You see, the problem has really not been solved. It's just been pushed off. Well, Jesus did not receive Mary's sin nature because Mary wasn't a sinner. Why was Mary not a sinner? Because of the Immaculate Conception. Well, what about Mary's mother? And Mary's mother's mother and Mary's mother's mother. And it takes us all back to two people known as Adam and Eve who died because of sin. Mary was a sinner, and Jesus was not preserved from sin because she was sinless, but rather because of another act of God. Let me ask a few more questions here, if we can continue to meditate. Why is so little said about the virgin birth of Christ in the New Testament outside of the early chapters of Matthew and Luke? We just have it here in Matthew, we have it here in Luke, and there's really not much else said about it. I think there's some really good reasons for that. Number one, the New Testament authors purposefully avoid focusing attention on the virgin birth as the final test of who Jesus is. It would turn into some sort of a biology test. That's not the point. The point, rather, is to demonstrate by Jesus' life and by his conquest of death that he was God. So the Gospel of John and the early preaching record in the book of Acts do not refer to Christ's birth because everything is taken care of by mention of Christ's life and by mention of Christ's death, by mention of his resurrection from the grave. To speak of his virgin birth is covered when we speak of his sinless life and of his defeat of the tomb. Could God have used another means than what he used with Jesus here, perhaps. I don't know what it would have been. I can tell you I can't think that well. But how does God take on flesh and at the same time remain fully God and free from sin? How else can one become fully human who was from eternity past fully divine and remain one person, not two? You're going to have a tough time figuring out how else to do that without having one human parent rather than two. In other words, having a virgin conception since men don't carry babies. I don't know how you get around it. 
I can't think of any other way. I suppose it's possible. But one thing I can conclude, this was the best way. There was no better plan and no better way. Let's begin to talk about even further what this means to us personally. Can a person be saved who never hears of the virgin birth? Certainly. I don't think it's essential to the gospel. And when the gospel is laid out in the scriptures, there's never a statement about the virgin birth as essential to the gospel. Certainly people have never really put that together or understood that. What you have to do is believe that Jesus is God, that he is capable of paying the penalty of your sin. But to believe in the virgin birth, I don't know that you need to hear about that doctrine in order to be saved. Can a person be saved who rejects the virgin birth? There it gets a little more difficult. I suppose it comes down to motive. Is it simply a person who is misguided, sincerely wrong, who doesn't understand how Jesus could be virgin born, but believes that he is the Son of God and the substitute for sin and trusts him by faith? I suppose that's possible. But one thing that we often find is those who reject the virgin birth of Jesus Christ reject a whole lot of other things with it. They reject who he is, and that's the problem. If he's just a man to you, can I say very graciously but very pointedly, you don't know Jesus. If he's just a man, if he had a human father and a human mother and he was just a good man, you have never met Jesus Christ, and you need to. What does the virgin birth teach us about God? And more pointedly, what does it teach us about salvation? We go back to Genesis 3 and verse 15, and we see here the, the essential connection to the people of God. Jesus, I won't take time to belabor it, but very obviously was born as a child of Abraham, a child of David, in the line that God had been establishing and highlighting throughout history to say that this one was the Savior. Prophetically, we could take the time to draw that out, but certainly this tells us the plan of salvation in God's mind was not an afterthought. It wasn't put together, and it's not being invented as we go along. God knew from the very beginning that Jesus would be the Savior to come at the fullness of time to bear the sin of the world. And it reminds us of the awesome wisdom of God. We're also reminded in the virgin birth of the necessity of divine gift. God sent His Son to be conceived in the womb of a woman to fulfill the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. And it says to us, we could never have gotten out of the mess of sin on our own. There was no human being who was going to be born that was going to be good enough to conquer sin for us. This had to be a gift of God. And in this way, along with thousands of other ways, if you believe that your salvation is earned through your own good works, you do not know the plan of God. You do not know the salvation story of Scripture. This is a plan that always takes the initiative of God, and we see it here again. Look at the work God goes to to get this done. Conceived in a virgin womb, Christ comes to earth, stating to us up front that salvation is a gift from God. And of course, this points us also to his divine love. 
This one who came, and we look at it today just in the context of this day in a fairly technical, biological sense almost, as we talk about the virgin birth. But let's remember the big story here, and that's that God took on flesh. He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ in a way that certainly is mysterious to us. But he took on human flesh and he came to this earth to reveal to us who he is. To show us how he lives. To show us how he thinks. To show us the power that he has. And to look at us then one day and to lay down his life out of love for you and for me. He took our sin and as a man died the penalty that we deserve to die. This virgin-born, eternal Son of God came to pay the penalty of human sin. And so in all of this we are reminded as we look through the virgin birth to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the conquest over death, that as Genesis 18.14 says, there is nothing that is too hard for God. As Matthew 19.26 says, all things are possible with God. This is a mystery that we should shout about. We can't understand it. We don't know all of the aspects that led to this conception in the womb of Mary. But what we can do is to shout about it. I started with Santa. There are, I suppose we could say, in the context of Santa, some things that are too good to be true. And people come to a place where they grow up and realize that that's the case. When I read God's Word, I find over and over again that there are some things that are too good not to be true. They're beyond myth. They're beyond imagination. They are nothing other than the finger of God in our world. And one of those evidences of the intervention of God in this world is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. How do we know that it's all true? We know for a lot of reasons. But one and the reason that we're gathered on the first day of the week is that there's an empty tomb. Jesus conquered death. If he can beat death physically and literally, it's no stretch to say that he was virgin born. And it's no stretch to say either that he rose from the dead or that he was virgin born when we come to a personal experience to understand that he washed away my sin as I come to saving faith in Jesus. If he can conquer our sin, he can conquer the grave. And so we rejoice in this day in his virgin conception, virgin birth, in his death and in his resurrection. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we thank you again for the mystery, for the amazing power of your grace to us in Jesus Christ. We are awed 
by the wonder of it all. We're so thankful that we do not follow cleverly devised tales, as Peter wrote. But that we hear the words of those, as he continued to say to his, uh, to his readers, we continue to hear the words of those who walked with Jesus, who were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And as John put it, we touched Him. We saw Him. We handled Him. He was with us. God in flesh. God, we thank You for this mystery that we cannot conceive, but that is within our hearts, those of us who know You by saving faith, this truth is within our hearts as strong as our own identity. We thank You for the mystery of the virgin birth of Christ, as we thank You for the wonder of His saving purposes toward us. I pray for anyone among us who may not know in a personal way Christ as Savior and Lord. For anyone who has not come to that place to realize that the Gospel is a truth to be obeyed. And I pray that You will shed light as only You can do and bring to salvation anyone who knows You not in a personal sense. And I pray, dear Father, for those of us who do, that we would leave this place rejoicing and shouting aloud the mystery of the virgin birth and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.